Welcome to the third episode of the How to Resist podcast. My name is Will O'Neill. The How to Resist podcast is a space for talking about how anyone can become an activist and take a strategic approach to resisting the Trump administration and making an impact in their communities, their workplace, their country, and the world. Each week, we're going to sit down with an activist who will tell us how they came to be empowered and how they are resisting the injustices they see around them and the Donald Trump administration. How to Resist isn't a space where we're going to try to convince you why it is important to resist injustice in general and Trump in particular. There are plenty of other places for that conversation. We're here to let you know that you are empowered to make change in the world around you. Since we produced episode two, the Trump administration has begun ramping up deportations of immigrants, floating the idea of enlisting 100,000 National Guards to participate in roundups, and reviewing two DHS drafts, which would increase expedited removals and possibly do away with deferred action for childhood arrivals, commonly known as DACA. Trump held a press conference at the White House, which can only be described as unhinged, where he dismissed concerns from a Jewish news agency about the rise of anti-Semitism in America, asked a black reporter if she would be so kind as to set up a meeting for him with the Congressional Black Caucus, despite the fact that he had ignored a request from the CBC to meet, and claimed he inherited a mess from President Obama, which couldn't be further from the truth. He also held a campaign-style rally in Florida, further proving that he doesn't care for the distinction between running for office and governing. But the administration is hitting a lot of roadblocks. Andrew Puzder withdrew his nomination for labor secretary after a concerted effort by organized labor and Senate Democrats to demonstrate his lack of qualifications with a hat tip to Oprah Winfrey. National Security Council Chair Michael Flynn was fired after it became clear that he had lied to the vice president about conversations he had had with Russian diplomats, and lawmakers are pushing for further investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russian intelligence. Flynn's proposed replacement, retired Vice Admiral Robert Harward, said no thanks to the job. Thousands of demonstrators across the country demonstrated yesterday at Not My President's Day rallies, showing that the resistance to Trump wasn't just a flash in the pan. This week, we'll be talking with Emilia Tallarico. Emilia is an organizer with Disrupt J20 and other organizations in the Maryland and D.C. area. Emilia started her organizing as a workplace advocate and quickly moved up to become a labor organizer for Change to Win, organizing federally contracted fast food workers to go on strike for $15 in a union. She is currently the field organizer for Global Trade Watch, winning on campaigns such as the Stop the TPP fight. So, Amalea, how are you resisting? You know, in the next four years during this terrible, awful administration, it's, we're going to all be resisting in different ways. Uh, personally, I am resisting by just being involved, being visible, at different different struggles, um, helping helping uplift other community voices, I am resisting by um, helping coordination of different movements. I, I see I see like successful movements being move, move, movements that are inclusive of like all of our community struggles and are you know vibrant and just amplifying all the different all the different communities that are going to be impacted by this administration. And so I'm resisting by being visible there and by helping with coordination and just showing up when, when folks need me to show up. 
How did you first become an activist? How did you first become involved in resistance like over the years? When I was younger, my mom had passed away and um, I wasn't that close to my father. My father wasn't someone that was supporting me really in any way. So I had to start working at a really young age and I was working at a sheet metal factory as a temp worker. And at the time I'm like, these wages are not enough to live off of. It is always more than 100 degrees inside of this factory. The bosses are mean. This work is hard. I guess this is what life is. I guess we just need to work these terrible jobs and hope maybe one day they'll make us be managers so we can earn enough for a living. And so, you know, I'm working as a temp worker and some of my other coworkers who weren't temp workers have been talking about forming a union and there's been organizers that were coming and talking to them. And as a temp worker, I couldn't organize, but I did, I was fortunate enough to have a chance to sit down with these organizers and it just, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Like we don't have to live like this. We don't have to struggle like this. We can, we can fight. We can fight for more. We can fight for what we deserve. And that, that was really my moment in which my political awakening happened, I guess we can say, where uh, where I went from being someone who's just like, this is just how it is, to someone who is like, no, this doesn't need to be this, it doesn't need to be this way. We can, we can organize to make it better. Um, and that was, that was around the time that I was 17, 18. And, uh, Moving on from there, I was involved in the labor movement. I was involved in Occupy. Um, I was a labor organizer for SEIU for a couple of years. I moved on to working for um, some environmentalists at Rainforest Action Network. And, um, you know, I was involved in as one of the core organizers for Disrupt J20. And currently I work for Global Trade Watch fighting unjust trade policies. Um, I find it really interesting how you went from being a worker who was being organized to being someone who organized workers yourself um, and then made sort of a transition into Occupy and into the environmental work. How, how do all of these issues overlap? Uh, because I know I see it a lot in the labor movement where we're working with the Blue-Green Alliance. We're working with some of these other organizations that are doing work that you don't necessarily think of as having to do with labor or you don't necessarily have to think about doing with trade, but they, they're all overlapping, and your career and your activism highlights that. You know, I am of the belief that all these move, movements are connected. No matter, like, you know, if our labor leaders are selling us out on environmental issues, like, environmental issues is a labor issue. We want good jobs, right? But we don't just want good jobs. We want good jobs that provides a future. It provides a future for us, for all of our people, for... Uh, future generations and if we're fighting for good jobs we need to be fighting for good jobs that keeps our planet growing in a healthy way not in a catastrophic way you know such as what the Trump administration is suggesting by bringing back coal jobs that that does nothing for the communities in Appalachia who have been plagued by the effects of coal mining for years who you know what I mean if you go if you go into the communities of North Carolina, 
where coal coal mining was was a thing and where a lot of those communities even even in Charlotte where the Bank of America headquarters is who is one of the biggest financiers of coal production for a number of years like that community has been severely impacted by those coal jobs as far as trade goes trade you know to a lot of to a lot of activists I know trade is a secondary issue but the reason why it's a secondary issue is because it's a root cause of so many things. Trade is a root cause of forced migration. Trade is a root cause to bad environmental protections. Trade is a root cause to unsafe food supplies. All these issues really intersect. And if we really want to have, if we want to imagine a world where it's just for every single person that's living, where everyone is healthy, everyone has like, what they what their needs are, their housing, their finances, their health care, like all these issues intersect. Absolutely. And, and yeah. one of the things that you, you said there was immigration, and I don't think that many people realize how important NAFTA was to our current immigration crisis. Um, you know, whatever side of the issue that you're on when it comes to, you know, what immigration reform has to look like, and we certainly need some form of immigration reform because what the status quo and what the Trump administration wants is certainly a non-solution. Um, but I don't think a lot of people realize how important NAFTA was in bringing about the migratory patterns that have led us to the situation that we have right now. That's that's correct. And it's, it's really unbelievable um, how we're scapegoating immigrants for job losses, but there's nothing about the policies that were in NAFTA that were inherently anti-bi-local, bi-American that promoted offshoring jobs and eliminating of jobs. So what, what NAFTA really did was it moved jobs away from local communities. It eliminated those jobs. It didn't just offshore them, but a lot of times it eliminated those jobs. And then it destroyed economies in Mexico as well as with ISDS which is uh, ISCS is investor state dispute. And what that is, is if you have multinational foreign investors, for example, the KXL, uh, Trans, Trans Canada, their investors are multinational. If, if, you know, long term, if we were able to shut down KXL from being built, those investors can turn around and sue those local governments for unlimited taxpayer dollars. So in Canada, they've been hit with a lot of ISDS cases, um, which is hurting their economy. And in Mexico, we destroyed their agriculture economy. We completely destroyed that industry, which was providing jobs for thousands of Mexicans in rural areas in Mexico now who have no economic freedom. What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to provide for their families? And these are like these are the systems that were created by NAFTA and by other unjust, fair or free trade policies. Mm -hmm. When you're going and talking to people who are workers or people who are are uh, involved in the immigration fight or people who are involved in the LGBTQ community, um, what theory of change are you presenting to people? What what do you talk about when you talk about how change is made and how does that re relate to the tactics that you're using? when you're going out and doing your activism? I guess, like, we have to look at the bigger picture. The same people that are hurting trans communities are the same people that are hurting our education system. The same people that are 
preventing workers from having livable wages are the same people that are toxifying our communities with bad environmental protections. And, you know, the theory of change that I present is like we need, if we really want a just world, we need to fight together. We need to bring different communities together because the people who are making these decisions, the people who are ultimately hurting our communities, oftentimes are one and the same. So right now, one of the biggest targets that is on the radar of uh, many of us who are progressive or radical or liberal is the Trump administration. But there's so many other targets that are really pushing that. And one of the ones that I want to talk about is Mike Pence. He's someone who is sort of waiting in the wings right now to get a lot of his agenda on the forefront. Um, I think that he was probably disappointed that he's not playing a larger role in the administration right now. But we've had rumors of a executive order that would target uh, gay people, that would target trans people, um, and he's definitely someone who's going to be pushing forward that agenda. What are some of the things that you're worried that's going to come out of either the Trump administration or from the vice president's office or from, from Congress? Because we know that they've got an entire list of issues that's waiting in their wings you know, okay. what, what, where do you where do you see a lot of these threats coming from? That's a good question. Um, personally, I think as far as an anti-LGBTQ executive order goes, I think, and like you know, I don't want to jinx this, but I think for the time period, we're okay there. We're not. It's not. It's personally, it's not something that is too worrying on me, just because. I think there is just as much pressure in Trump's administration not to immediately go and start undoing Obama's executive orders for LGBT protections. And I, that doesn't mean that I don't think like the Christian right isn't going to start amping up pressure. I think like we're just in a period with LGBT rights as far as executive orders go that we don't have to worry as much as that. And we should start worrying on like these other executive orders that are harming immigrant and Muslim communities. Um, however, that doesn't mean that LGBT folks, especially trans folks, have nothing to worry about right now. Um, with the repeal of ACA, we're starting to see states across the country. Um, one of the things that people don't realize with ACA is a lot of the different protections that weren't previously in our healthcare system were there. In particular, that um, there's a long, a long fought history with health insurance companies discriminating against trans folks, especially on their hormones, on their surgeries, on their therapy. And these are all things that helped our, helped our community grow during the Obama administration. Obama, given what he was and the policies that he implemented that um, hurt different communities, he also created policies that were helpful for particular trans communities that we'd, we'd never seen before. And it allowed our community to grow, particularly under um, access to changing our identification papers and access to health care. And so with the, re with the repeal of ACA, what we're seeing is in different states, in particular Wisconsin was the first one so far, where they're just like, oh, so now now we're not obligated to provide these protections, so we're just not going to do them. We're not going to make insurance companies protect this group of people. And so now in Wisconsin, if you are a trans person, you're in a very unfortunate situation with your health care where your insurance is no longer covering your hormones. 
if you if you have surgery scheduled, you're, they're going to make you pay out of pocket. Um, if you're you know if you had a therapist that was talking to you in any context around gender and being trans, like you're it's no longer being covered. Um, and I think ultimately we're going to see that spread. In the past administration, within the Obama administration, a lot of these protections weren't pushed forward through in outright bills, a lot of the protections, um, just because of how ineffective Congress has been. Um, a lot of these protections have been added in other bills. It has been added in ACA. It has been added in public education bills. So there hasn't been outright bills that gives LGBT folks, and in particular what I'm talking about is trans folks, since there hasn't been an equality bill that has been passed for trans folks, that trans folks are included. So we're seeing a lot of these bills making it through Congress or um, a couple of different lawsuits that states have pushed forward with the executive order for trans folks in, in schools um, mm -hmm. with a public accommodations. Like, those cases are no longer being fought by the Department of Justice. Um so that is where that is actually where we are seeing the harm for LGBT folks is is in like these bills and in these cases that are no longer being fought um, and not not in particular in any immediate executive order. Does that so make sense? It, it does absolutely. And it, and one of the the comparisons I would make is that in the last seven or eight years we have seen about thirty percent of the anti-abortion legislation on the state level uh, that has been passed since Roe v. Wade. So, you know, Roe v. Roe v. Wade was about 40 years ago, and just in the past six or eight years, there have been more pieces of legislation attacking a woman's right for an abortion uh, in on the state level than there have been sort of any time previous to that. Uh, and what I hear you saying is that we have to really watch on the state level that these laws are going to be passed that are targeting LGBTQ folks and especially especially the trans folks yes. and that mm -hmm. we're not going to have a Department of Justice that's going to say these laws are unconstitutional or these laws go against uh, federal statute or these laws are unjust. Hit the nail right on the head. That's that's. Exactly, exactly. A lot of these, and a lot of these fights are going to happen on state levels, especially if you go back for the past couple of years. Um, other folks call these bathroom bills. Mm -hmm. I personally call them witch hunting bills because that's exactly what they are. Absolutely. Uh, and you've seen those bills fought throughout state districts, and we're going to continue seeing those. And the difference here is. Before, like, the current trend was like, oh, no, that's bad. That's, that's discrimination. Like, we can't let the state pass that. Now what we're seeing is we're going to see less people fighting that because there's so many people fighting so many issues right now that the folks at the bottom are just going to get, just going to get hit. So how can someone be mindful of that when they're approaching their activism? And how can they plug into the work that you are doing and the work that other people are doing to make sure that those communities are heard from and are represented are represented and have a seat at the table. Um, one of the things that was I felt was really encouraging was yesterday I went to a rally that was for uh, 
in favor of immigrants uh, and against the immigration executive order. And one of the chants that they were doing was, um, you know, undocumented, unafraid, but they were also saying trans, queer, unashamed. And I was really impressed that that, mess, that messaging, that solidarity had been included in an environment that could really get away with just talking about immigrants. They were talking about trans and queer folks as a community that needs to be protected as part of the immigration community, but also sort of in solidarity. And I was, that really enheartened me. How would you tell someone to, to get involved and make sure that those voices are included? Personally, I would suggest other activists to approach this work um, representing, and I really mean representing, like a fierce love for all of our people. If we, if we want to win, you know, we need, we need to be showing up for everyone, and we need to be representational of that. Um, I think that was a really beautiful example that you just provided. Just more of that, more of that. Yeah, yeah I think... Uh, I think for newer activists that are coming into this work, understand that there has been people that have been fighting all their lives for justice. And if you're just coming into this, you you never fought for anything like before coming into it. I mean, you might have fought for, for plenty, but not in the context that you're walking into now. And it's being mindful of that, being respectful of that. And um, I think a lot of times what we see in D.C. is Activists have been doing this work for years, for generations, and they set up all these different structures to help, to help implement and help organize this work and help make this work effective. And oftentimes you see newer folks come in who aren't mindful of that or who don't, don't realize that these systems or structures were set up and they go to recreate these structures without um, coordinating and connecting and networking with those existing communities. And I think that's one thing that new activists could really be mindful of is like coming into this work, be mindful that there have been people that have been fighting. And two, we should be checking in with them and seeing where, you know, where, where do we fit best in here without like going into this work and being like, I'm just going to do my own thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's absolutely. like, it's like listening to the existing communities that have been fighting and, like, taking lead from them. Yeah. One of the things that I've come to realize is that I don't need to be a leader in everything that I'm doing, um, and that there's some opportunities for me, myself as an activist, to be in a leadership role. There's some places where I can be in a support role, uh, making sure that people have email lists set up and have the tools to make sure that, you know, when someone shows up, they're being introduced to the right people, that they're getting all the information that they need, that they have access to that. Um, and sometimes it's just showing up, like you said. And I know that the event that I went to yesterday, just speaking about that again, it wasn't an event where I could have a leadership role. I'm not an immigrant. We need to be putting immigrants forward as the leaders of that movement because it's for them. But for a lot of it, I just need to show up. Um, and I think that that's a misconception that a lot of people have about activism. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear people having or that you're experiencing um, that someone that's new to activism might be able to skip over um, or might be able to sort of get past? 
Um, that's a good question. So on, uh, in one of the turfs that I organized, this conversation came up um, about a week ago about the Women's March, and someone had asked me because, you know, they knew that I had some criticisms, and they knew that I'm in D.C., and that, like, I, I'm hearing a lot of things that they out in rural states might might not be hearing. So what they were saying was, like, you know, these critiques about the Women's March, like, shouldn't we not be critiquing them? Should we just, like, isn't that dividing a movement? Is that hurting a movement? And I I actually, my, my response was that um, actually because the word divisive came up, I'm sure, like, us us more seasoned activists have heard that term quite a bit over the years yes. of, like, you're being divisive, you're just being divisive. So the that that concept came up, and, and my response was, like, no, no. A lot of these people that are providing criticisms come from these different communities with very individual experiences, and a lot of times, like, those experiences aren't heard. So what's actually being divisive and what's actually hurting a movement is not listening to those criticisms and just saying that they're trying to, they're trying to split up a movement. What we should be doing is listening to those criticisms and trying to reflect, like, how do we perpetuate that? Or how can we make this better that, like, is incorporated of their criticisms? Like, you know, um, for example, come from the trans community is, like, it wasn't very the Women's March in particular wasn't very inclusive of trans folks. They actually cut the mic off of a black trans woman that was speaking, which, you know, for a lot of us older trans folks who have been organizing for a number of years, even dating back to the marriage equality fight, we remember how HRC did that to a bunch of, like, Latina trans folks. And it's just, it's it kind of, like, it's almost, it's almost like PTSD. It's almost bringing back a traumatic memory of how we're being thrown on the bus again. And there's other, you know, obviously there's other critiques, um, especially from many different communities. And uh, I, I actually want to take this time to applaud the Women's March because in the days afterwards, I've, I was following them very hardcore and I saw them, like, take these critiques and address each one of them. And, like, since, you know, I've actually seen them, like, going up, going up to that march, like, leading up to that march, I saw a lot of harmful things come from the Women's March, and then coming out of that march, I saw them trying to, you know, really take the steps to show growth and understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, like, just in general, like, we should be listening to, like, marginalized communities, historically marginalized voices when they have critiques. Instead of just shutting it out, like, we should, like, listen to those critiques in a non-judgmental way. And just, you know, just listening, like, make sure folks feel heard, make sure folks are heard, make sure, make sure that we are addressing these critiques, make sure that we are addressing this feedback in a way that allows our movements to grow. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of those critiques are coming not from a place of you're doing a bad job. They're coming from a place of we want you to do a better, more inclusive job because this is something that we care about. Um, I don't think that you would be launching this sort of thoughtful critique of a Tea Party rally, uh, because that's not something that you yeah. care about. I mean, I, I will say, like, that I definitely provide critiques that um, weren't as helpful in the way of, like, we want you to do a better job, but I think 
and I think others as well did so. Um, but I think it's coming from a place of exhaustion. Uh-huh. Um, it's coming from a place of like, we're tired of this same repeat scenario happening and no one listening. You know, a lot of times that's like an unfortunate place to be in and just because it doesn't seem like the feedback is that, that we want you to grow or is that we want you to do a better job, I think that feedback should still be listened to because um, this work, this work is tiring, you know? Absolutely. We, we all have a... We all have our emotional days. We all have our times where, like, we're just really showing our emotion out of this exhaustion, and we want to be heard. And I think just because someone sounds frustrated, we shouldn't like, we shouldn't discount their opinion, right? We should, we should figure out where the source of that exhaustion is and do our best not to repeat that. And um, in particular context, when I say that we're tired, if you go back way back even before Stonewall and the LGBT movement, trans folks in particular, trans women of color, have been talked over, have been silenced. If you, if you Google search right now Sylvia Rivera and YouTube, like if you search for a YouTube video, you'll see her speaking about how she was treated and how other trans folks were treated in 1973 at, the, at a Columbus Day rally. And then if you Google search Obama trans heckler, you're going to see a very similar speech, 40 years apart, given by two brown trans women about how they're being silenced and how these other issues are being ignored because white, cis, gay, and lesbian issues are more palatable to, to popular audiences than, than brown trans struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's incredible that 40 years apart, people are giving very similar speeches and the responses from the other queer, gay, lesbian folks in the crowd is very much the similar. Um, in particular, in the, the more recent video that I'm talking about, she's told by white, white gay men, this is not for you. This is not for you. The mainstream LGBT movement has a lot, a lot to thank trans women for. And it's been been a long time where trans women have constantly been silenced pushed to the sides where our issues aren't being fought for but things like gay marriage are being fought for trans women struggle in housing they struggle in employment they struggle in health care and we've been on the front lines fighting for these things and oftentimes we're on those front lines alone you know trans women in particular three more times likely than anyone else in this country to have a college degree, six more times likely to be unemployed. That's incredible. And I, and I think that one of the other things that we need to talk about in that, and something that I've seen people that I care about suffer from, is that suicide is out of control in the trans community. We have absolutely, an, absolutely. We have an absolute ap- epidemic. I know it. A young trans man who, you know, killed himself maybe six or seven years ago now, and it was, it was entirely a result of him receiving abuse, and it was the saddest thing that I've ever seen. Um, there's an epidemic of rape and an epidemic of suicide within the trans community, and and so many other communities aren't talking about that and aren't recognizing it for what it is. 
And in order to be a good ally, you know, I'm a straight white guy. I don't, you know, like, I need to be a better ally to trans women and trans men who are experiencing those things. And I was so gladdened to see that the other day when I was at that immigration rally that people were talking about it and it made me really happy. Uh, and I think that we need to do more of that and do more of having an intersectionalist conversation when it comes to including trans people. Just to switch gears a little bit, one of the things that you, you, you talked about how you were tired in a sort of larger way, but when you're tired in sort of the regular old exhausted way, how do you take care of yourself? How do you make sure that you're able to be there sort of for the long term? To be honest, uh, I'm a lifetime long cyclist. When, whether I'm physically or just emotionally exhausted, like the best thing for me is going on really long bike rides, but I'm also a workaholic. Self-care for me is honestly working. And if that means that I'm, I'm exhausted on a particular project, I have so much going on in my life that there's plenty of other projects to switch gears on and work on that for a little while. If, like, I'm tired of, like, working on uh, facilitating meetings for just up to 20 and typing up notes and doing all that, then I can work on the just up to 20 website or I can work on a project for a contractor. Um, yeah, I mean... One of the things that that I notice and really appreciate in a lot of other folks that are similar to me who, like, had a drop out of high school, didn't go to college, like, been working their entire lives, is that they have, they have this need to keep working. Like, mm -hmm. we all have this need to just work constantly, and for some reason, it, it, it works for us to the point where it's not, it's not too exhausting, um... Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but no, it no, it does. So just to be able to change gears and and work on something else. And I know that you. I, one of the things that uh, saying I heard a long time ago was, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. And that sort of sounds like what you're telling me right now. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you get out of your activism? You know, uh, besides sort of the policy goals, and I think that we all we all need to lift up when we win at every opportunity. Um, and I think on the left, we don't do that enough. But apart from sort of the policy goals, what have you gotten out of your activism? Uh, honestly, I've gotten community. I'm part of the trans women community. I'm half Puerto Rican. I'm part of that community. But the community that really has stood directly behind me, and you're inclusive of this, is is my activist community. Is the people who like I spend night and day organizing with, no matter what their identity or affinity is, no matter what community they come with, like, when we're organizing together on long-term projects, when when we do a direct action together, when, like, we decide this Bank of America needs to stop financing coal, we're going to take an arrest right here. Those people I get arrested with, those those are my community, and that's what, that's what I get out of this, is, like, when we're organizing together, we're building together, and and the result of that building is... is is what's been keeping me going, really. I've met the most important people in my life through my activist community, um, and so many of those relationships go back to shutting down a street, go back to you know sitting in a community meeting, um, you know, go back to a friend of a friend who's also involved in labor or feminism or whatever whatever struggle it mm -hmm. is, and I think that we as 
activists who who were fighting against stuff that the Obama administration was doing need to bring those communities with us into the fight against what the Trump administration is going to be doing. Now it is time for the how to resist quick question round. I'll ask a question if you could just respond as quickly as possible. Is it okay to punch a Nazi in the face? Yes. Um, what is a dumb thing that a counter-protester has yelled at you? Tranny. What was the last book you read? Digital Strategy by Brad Shinnick. Okay. Uh, what are three quick tips to someone who wants to resist the Trump administration? Uh, look to your elders. Show up when asked. Center historically marginalized voices and frontline communities. What's the worst thing Trump has done yet? Uh, the worst thing Trump has done was pass executive orders that split up families. Um, what's a question that you would like to hear asked on this podcast? Where do we plug in? Um, what's the best sign that you've seen at a rally? That, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't really have an answer to that. Uh, um, okay, like what's your favorite sitcom? Over the, my favorite sitcom? Yeah. Hmm. I really like Scandal. Uh, not a sitcom, but what's your favorite member of Congress? <laughs> um, easily Bernie Sanders. All right. Well, that's if, all if that... I were to have a favorite member. Okay. Well, that's all that we have time for for the quick question round. But um, good answers all around. Um, and your question about plugging in, how would you answer that? How, you know, if someone wants to be come involved and they've attended a rally or two, but maybe isn't sure. Maybe they came to the women's march. They're in their communities. They don't really know what the next step they can take is. How can they either plug into the work that you're doing or how can they become more active on their own? At least in a local context, what a lot of the folks who are involved in Disruptor 20 are trying to do is trying to actually provide the solution so that we're trying to figure out a way where we can have so many activist communities present where folks can, in a space where folks can see it's visible and they're able to just go to those different communities and plug in. We're trying to create community spokes councils that happen once a month for different groups to coordinate with each other. I think, in general, I would ask an organizer that's that's involved in in making that action happen that you're at, you know? All right. And, uh, Amalia, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? Resist together. Resist together. Thank you so much for for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to How to Resist, and thank you to Amalea for coming on. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, and please do leave a review. Notes from the show, including links, can be found on howtoresistpodcast.com. While you're there, sign up for our email updates. Thanks to Beth Soderberg for help with our website, Sariel Layani for logo and design, and Carolyn Hanrahan for production assistance. Thank you for listening. I'm Will O'Neill, and thank you for resisting.